Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Please note, this podcast is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. I didn't talk about what had happened to him for a long, for a long time. I just couldn't. Joining us today as my guest is Helen McGinn, author of The Knackered Mother's Wine Club, an award-winning wine blog and best-selling book. Helen is an international wine judge, a columnist on a national newspaper with regular appearances on the telly in her capacity as a wine expert. Her latest book, Homemade Cocktails, has just been published. Helen, welcome. And we're here today to talk about your brother. We are. Tim. Yes. And he was murdered. He was. Can you tell us your story and paint a little picture of where you live and yeah yeah your life and the wine and the wine and the beautiful children exactly so yes I am one of three and I'm the eldest of three so my sister Alex and my little brother Tim and we were all brought up together in the new forest had a very happy childhood down there you know we were near the water we were in the woods all the time and uh, in fact, we grew up near the Bewley Motor Museum. So that was my playground was a big car museum, which is quite, quite strange, but um, very lovely. I th- kind of thought it was normal. Uh, so. <laughs> that is the home of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. It is, exactly. For anyone who likes cars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I uh, yeah, we were down there. And in fact, I have uh, since moved back down there with my family after being in London for a while. And it was uh, when... I was living in London in my 20s and my brother was also living in London. Tim was here too. What region of London? Well, what area of So London? then I was in West London. I was in Hammersmith um, and I lived there with my husband Ross and my brother was in Battersea at the time. So uh, we saw a lot of each other in London. We were really close. My sister by then lived in Belgium. She still lives there now. Uh, but... Tim and I used to hang out a lot in London. We had lots of the same friends. So he really was, I mean, he was a really big part of my life. And he was uh, six foot two. Um, He was a very big personality, sporty, loads of friends. I mean, I know everyone says life and soul of the party, but he really was such a life force. And um, I was six years older than him. Yeah, about six years older than him. 
and my sister was in the middle. So he was my he was my baby brother. And we were in London at the time. And I remember one January night, end of January, I was lying on the sofa watching something with my husband, probably about seven o'clock in the evening. And I got a phone call and I remember answering it. And it was my uh, brother's girlfriend, Gemma. And she was screaming. And the only words I could hear her saying was, he's been stabbed. And it sounds ridiculous, but my first thought was I was just cross with him because I thought he's got in a fight. Like he's in, you know, come out of the pub and he's got in a fight. And doesn't he know that that's a really bad idea? And so I couldn't really quite work it out. But after that, things kind of went into a go slow. It's very weird. I I remember lots and nothing, if you know what I mean. Um, It kind of goes in stages. And so I remember just trying to understand what Gemma was saying, but she was just screaming and screaming. And and then the phone went over to a voice I didn't know who just, this voice just said to me, your brother's just been put in an ambulance. You need to go to um, St. Thomas's Hospital. So I remember we, Ross, we got in the car and we drove and it was dark. And again, see, you remember weird things. I remember driving past Buckingham Palace, looking at my hands because my hands had just sort of frozen and I couldn't, I was just trying to move my fingers. For some reason, I just kept thinking, if I keep moving, it'll be all right. So I was sitting there just trying to keep my hands moving and got to the hospital and Ross had to just drop, stop the car and me get out. And to this day, I don't know how I did it, but I just had to get one leg in front of the other and walk into the hospital, not knowing what I was going to find. And your mother, father and sister weren't in London at the no. time? So you were the first one I was the, the first only one, one there. there. My uh, mum was actually away on holiday. She was in um, Thailand, I think. And my sister was in... Um, Brussels and my dad was at home in the New Forest. So uh, I had to call my father to say this has happened and I think it, I don't know what, but it's bad and you need to come up here now. So he obviously got straight in the car from the New Forest and drove up. And by the time, I think shortly after, I remember Gemma, Tim's girlfriend, who we'd been with for quite a long time. So, you know, we knew her really well and her parents had come as well. So I just sort of remember pieces of that. And after that, it is a bit of a blur that night. Mm -hmm. So he was, I didn't see him again after that until uh, probably hours later, maybe the next day um, when he was on life support machine. Right. And what actually happened? You say it was a stabbing, but what were the circumstances and where was he? What time of day? So the circumstances were, and again, this is, uh, you know, we didn't really find this out until quite a long time afterwards. In fact, the facts of it, we didn't know until after the court case. Which was how um, long after uh, the event? So uh, it was fairly soon afterwards. I mean, you okay. know, for like a week or so, maybe or... a month or something. Oh, right. It was fairly soon. I mean, they they the people who stabbed him were found 
pretty quickly. Right. Um, but the the you know the it took it took a, a while for it to get to All court. the details to come exactly, out. Exactly for the details to to come out, and um, it transpired that what had happened was the uh, Tim had been followed by a carjacking gang. So he had driven to Victoria Station to pick Gemma, his girlfriend, up. And he, at the time, was driving uh, an Audi A3. So, um, you know, he was an estate agent driving a slightly sporty car. But it was, I mean, it was no great Shakespeare, but I think it went fast. Right. (laughs) Um, So uh, he was followed. And when he parked outside his flat in Warrener Gardens, uh, two people approached him. One asked Gemma the time, and uh, then the other went for his keys. And Tim, being Tim, put up a fight and to to stop them. You know, get off my girlfriend. Didn't want to give the keys over, and he was stabbed seven times, and one of them was through the heart. So, uh, unfortunately, he, although he was then on life support machine, he died three days later. And you say there was three, there three were, people. T- there were two, um, uh, one one of which was sentenced to life. So the one that was sentenced to life was, I presume, the guy holding the knife? Yeah, yeah. And the yeah. other one was sentenced to... Uh, do you know, I'm not sure how long yeah. uh, he but got. Not as long. But not as long. Um, but, you know, they were 18 and 15 or 16, I think. How many years has it been since it happened now? So that was 2002. So we are talking 17 years. So it's yeah. interesting that you don't know. I, I just, For some reason, I expected yeah. you to know the absolute sort of year and be like, right, well, it was 17 years and sort of yeah. a month. But no, it's really funny. It's never, it's never really felt like that because I think for a lot of it, uh, and this will probably sound quite strange, but for a lot of it, there is so much of him still around. <laughs> For me, mm. that I don't think of it that, you know, it's 17 years since he wasn't here. Uh, and I also, I think probably, uh, and maybe this is where self-preservation comes in, but I I try not to associate what happened to him with him. Right. It's like two different things. You don't want it almost to contaminate his memory. It just, until the second it happened, he didn't know it was coming. And, and in, in a way, I'm so grateful that, that was the case mm. because he was just living his life. Yeah. And had I suppose, no idea. You know, it's not like depression that culminates in a suicide. No. no. And he was living his life at a million miles an hour, having a brilliant time mm. with his friends and family and girlfriend. And then he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. Which must be so difficult to make sense of. You know, grief is so complex anyway, isn't it? Yeah. But how have you found from from when it sort of first happened to where you are now, what's been the sort of the story or the, I don't want to use the word journey, but yeah. it seems That's to be the best one journey. at the minute. Yeah. I mean, how, how yeah. have things changed and where are you now? I think for a long time afterwards, and I would say probably about three years, I felt like I was underwater. Like I could see things going on and I could hear people and I had and have got an amazing you know network of friends and family where you know we're all pretty close and I was very lucky as well that a lot of my friends were Tim's friends 
And actually that really helped. So for those first few years after he died, I was with those people a lot because I just felt safe being with them because we'd all been through this same hideous, you know, situation. And and you could, you know, it, I couldn't make sense of it. But when I was with those people, I didn't have to make sense of it. Mm. But also we didn't, you know, I don't think I ever really sat there. I didn't talk about what had happened to him for a long, for a long time. I just couldn't. Uh, and then, so there was that feeling of numbness for a long time. And then I think what kind of brought me back to the surface, if you like, was having children of my own because oh. that forces you back into the now like yeah. nothing else. There yeah. is no, you can't, you can't just carry on swimming the underwater. The show must go on. <laughs> the show must go yeah. on, exactly. Yeah. So when did you have your um, first child? What was the period of time from Tim dying and then having your first child? Uh, so that would have been two years. Okay, two years so after. Yeah, two years after Yeah. Um, that I had George. And then at what point do you think for you um, with your grief, where can you remember times when it sort of changed and sort of became something else? Because, of course, those people never leave you. Yeah. And in a way, the hurt never goes. Or, But there's sometimes points, isn't there, where something just changes a little bit or yeah. something gets, gets, a feeling gets less acute. Yes, I think I, uh, I think I didn't want to think about it for a very long time. So I think I told myself I was fine for a very long time and actually I wasn't and one of the things actually that makes me realize that that was the case was it it that you know I didn't although I had George two and a half years after Tim died you know I know that I couldn't have had children before then because my I my body just I didn't think it would have let me you know I just wasn't as fine as I thought I was uh, if that makes sense. And I think, I mean, everybody deals with grief differently. Of course they do. But I honestly don't think I've ever had, I've never felt really angry about it. I really? almost felt like feeling angry about it. Uh, Tim would look at me and say, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, it would really annoy him if I sat there being angry about it. Because that is not how, that is not, that was not the point of him. So how would he have wanted you to? Just get on and enjoy life and make the most of it. I mean, genuinely, don't waste a second. Right. Just go and, just go and do it. So where are you today with it all? I think, again, this is probably because enough time has passed for me to feel very differently about it. So I think I've gone from not really looking at it too closely, probably because I was a bit scared of what I would find, you know. So if there is that big hole, I just didn't look into it at all. And I think over the years, and particularly when the children came, my, you know, I had children of my own, I've got three now, uh, you know, I talked about him more. Mm. I talked about him to them more because... Children are able to talk about people who aren't there anymore so easily. It makes you realise that us as the adults have got the hang-ups about yeah, it. Yeah, we make it really weird for we them. We <laughs> make it really weird for them. And they, you know, they don't find it weird at all. I mean, you know, even when one of them, you know, as they do, 
said to me one day, you know, how did Uncle Timmy die? And I had been dreading that moment because I didn't want to tell them that he got stabbed. But then I thought, I can't lie to them. You know, that's what happened. So I did tell them, but in a way I felt that they could, you know, it wasn't going to freak them out or scare them. You know, it was just that sometimes really bad things happen. And as frustrating and searingly painful as it is, there is nothing you can do about that. And how did they react to that? Because I can sort of imagine with sort of conversations I've had with my children about sort of grief and death and sort of you think it's going to be terrible and you feel really irresponsible. So, and then they go, can I have a piece of toast? <laughs> and you're yes. like, okay, yes. yeah. Because yes. actually, whilst you've told them the truth, they can't quite compute what you're no. saying. And in many ways, that's no. good. Yeah. Well, depending on their age, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. I've yes. always been yeah. um, quite relieved when they've turned around and said something like that, when yeah. I've been trying to explain something quite yeah. deep. But I find that, uh, you know, every now and again, they'll come back to it. When they want to, they'll mm. come back to it and they'll come back to it and they'll they might ask another question. But what's really nice now is because we talk about Tim a lot at home and with his friends and you know the friends that come to the house now are very often old friends of his and there are pictures everywhere that it's not weird to yeah. talk about and we he's talk part about of the conversation he he's part, around yeah, yeah yeah so again it comes back to that thing that I want to spend the time talking about him talking about him not talking about what happened yeah and it's you know your eldest George is you said 15 and imagine if he'd found out age 15 that suddenly oh gosh right well I thought this happened and now I realized this horrible secret has been kept from me yeah and actually now there's this awful horror that's unfolded yeah Yeah. so and also you have to remember you know stuff's on the internet it's all there and one day they might they might find it and I don't want to be the person who's told them you know an untruth for them to then find out from someone other than me. So at any point did you decide that actually it was too much and often in these circumstances you can't rely on family members because they're going through the same thing, your friends are going through the same thing to a Mm. certain extent. So did you ever seek out professional help or how did you help yourself, I guess? I didn't seek professional help, but I I did have a few um, situations where... I learned once I was in them, uh, I realized I was out of my depth. So not that long after he died, if I felt, for example, uh, I might remember finding myself on a hen weekend one weekend and realizing that is the worst place to go when you're (laughs) dealing with grief. So that was like after that, just kind to myself and thought, don't do things where you're going to feel that you're just not surrounded by that network of people that you feel safe with, which goes back to the fact that I... I I did hold those people really close for a long time and they were amazingly supportive, you know, and I should say as well, my husband, he grew up with my brother as well, you know, because we've all known each other since we were little. And so I think if I hadn't had that, then maybe I I would have needed some professional help. But I, Mm. I think I was very fortunate to be surrounded by people who just helped me work through it absolutely um so you had the space to release and talk and yeah process yeah and maybe also being an eldest of three you know my my job description was to make sure the other two were okay yeah and that still sort of carries on yeah and your husband I mean 
you know, sometimes it's hard. He was going through his own grief and suffered a huge trauma yeah. like you did. Yeah. Yes, it wasn't his brother, but I'm sure that, you know, brother-in-law, yeah, yeah. you can be. Yeah. So so he must have found it very difficult to sort of support you in it. Yeah. It's also complex, isn't it, grief, when you're yeah. having to support other people, yet you're going through the trauma yourself. Yeah, he was. He was utterly amazing and, and uh, you know, and still is. And I, But again, it's a comfort because I knew how much Tim adored my husband and uh you know he was like a big brother to him really and so that I think again I was with somebody who knew him really well and I think maybe that then helped me work through the process really of grief I mean it is ridiculous I do remember uh at one stage I did google the five stages of grief this was you know years ago because I was like where am I When am I going to be through it? Exactly. When is this all going to end? Yes. (laughs) Because, you know, there would be moments where um, I might be driving back from the school run and a song comes on and I drive across this beautiful Heath Road in the New Forest on the way back. It is stunning. And uh, I would have to pull the car over because from nowhere, uh, you know, just the thought of him not being there meant I couldn't physically drive the car anymore. I mean, it was... It, you know, it doesn't happen nearly so often now, but, you know, for a few years it did it did happen more. Um, but I think that's when I realised that this process, it, it never ends. Like, mm. I, there, won't be a t- there won't be a day when I wake up and think, it's okay, I'm never going to feel sad anymore because it doesn't work like that. <laughs> if only but... <laughs> in a way. But then again, you yeah. would never want to not be yes. thinking about them. Yeah. So in a way, you want the pain yeah. to end, but you want yes. their memory yeah. for them to feel close. Exactly. And it's more a case of understanding that you have to learn to live with it. And most of the time, living with it is good. Like, it, you, you think to yourself... I'm so happy I had him as a brother. Mm. And that is much more powerful than thinking, I'm so sad he's not here anymore. You know, it's being grateful for what you had rather than being sad about what you've not got. You said something interesting earlier about the fact that your body, you know, when people suffer traumatic events and the fact that your body almost froze Mm. and you were in, you know, it was interesting what you said about your hands and Mm. just sort of almost trying to prove that you were still alive and yeah. not numb yeah but yet your mind was kind of yeah. oh I'm okay yeah I think I'm okay yeah I'm just gonna yeah. carry on because yeah. that's what we do as humans yes. isn't it and, yeah. and I think a lot of the debate within mental health and when people are talking about trauma and how it manifests itself is that mind-body split mm. Mm. um and and at what point did you feel if at all them coming back together or can you describe that process sort of any more yeah well I think it goes back to that feeling uh I was talking about the fact that I had to I had to re-engage with the world. I had to come out of that bubble of very close friends and family and go back to living, you know, a, a normal life as in life before this happened. And so it does, you know, it comes for me it came back over time. You know, I didn't sort of hide myself away and then and then go back. It was just a slow kind of process. But yes, I do remember realizing that I couldn't I couldn't just ignore it you know mm. that wasn't going to fix the problem it would it was going to come back and bite me if I did that right so it was a question so for a long time for example after it happened I didn't in fact all during the court I didn't go to court I didn't go to the court case I didn't look at a newspaper I didn't look at anything because I just didn't want 
any of the information of what had happened to Tim in my head and then realised, you know, a few months afterwards that actually just look at it so it's there and then go and then move on. Because if I didn't look at it at all, it would become this monster in my head. Exactly. And I just thought, just know the facts, know what happened and then and then learn to live with it. So you did read about it and you probably then read the names of the men, yeah. the boys who did it. Yeah. And how do you feel now? One's in for life, mm. which probably means like 25 years and then he'll come out. out. He's out. Mm-hmm. The one who was given life. Mm-hmm. And the other one will most certainly be out. Mm-hmm. So how do you reconcile that in your head? Do you do you obsess about it when you're walking around London thinking, where are they? What are they doing? Or Again, I try not to think about that too much uh i think yes when i was told that they were going you know they they were going to be released um it felt really strange uh but our paths are unlikely to cross unless it was made to happen and uh if it did i had thought about you know what would happen if i ever came face to face with and it's almost like I just would want to say to them, I am just so, so sad that it happened and I wish it hadn't. That's that's it. Right. <laughs> Which sounds mad probably, but you, I can't change it. I can't change it. And I would just hope that whatever they have since been through might make them think I'm not going to do that again and do you think about potentially what might have happened to them in their lives in order to have brought them to the point where they stab an innocent person three times you know do you think about their upbringing at all or like so there was something that was said to me again uh, I think it was my dad who told me this that when the police went to the mother of one of the two boys who did it to tell them what had happened, uh, how distraught and upset she was. And that really stayed, that really stayed with me because that they're, you know, it made them people. Mm. It's just, who knows what their situation was. So is that almost like a positive thing? In a way, I suppose it's the element I'm trying to get at is that, bringing the humanity into the criminal justice process. So knowing that the mother was sort of destroyed by it. It sounds really weird because I'm not trying to say that was a a positive thing because there's nothing positive out of this situation. But did you find there was an element of It just brings it back very much to the point that it's human beings uh, and and that we're we're all just... We are all the same, Mm. I guess. You know, I think it's easy... I can understand how it's easy to to just make if you don't like something you just make them into a monster but you know they weren't born a monster mm. and I think that is very for me has been a, an important part of again the the process is I don't wish or feel you know strong negative emotions towards those people I feel incredibly sad about it and wish and like I said wish it hadn't happened but I 
my only hope is that m maybe they learnt something from what happened and from the experience and didn't do it again. If you'd had the opportunity to meet them in prison and talk to them, you know, the restorative justice process, mm. which brings sort of um, often the victim, if they're mm. still alive, or families of the victim together with the perpetrator, it's managed mm. very carefully, of course. Would you, is that something you would have felt that you would have got some benefit from? I know they're out and that, that moment's gone, but mm. is that something that you would have contemplated? I I think, again, now, 17 years on, then then possibly yes it would be something that i could i could see could happen mm. um and might help on both sides certainly not in the beginning i i you know i i almost just thought i, I don't i don't want to know anything um but over time you realize that you you've got to face you've got to face up to it and and just think these you know these people ha are in situations that you know I, I don't understand i don't know the background but it can't have been that great for them to do what they did mm. you're listening to justice with edwina grosvenor when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So how do you feel? I mean, you know, recently and in the last couple of years, the knife crime in London has got completely out of control. And I imagine every time you hear a story about a stabbing and someone dying, it probably brings it back to you like a sort of 10 ton truck. But what what's your sort of take on, you know, what's happening in London at the minute? And 
What feelings well, does obviously, it bring up? Yeah, obviously it's really, really hard to see it so you know so much in the headlines and it's so heartbreaking because it feels like uh you know it it seemed to get better for a bit and i i mean i know that knife crime did go down between i think 2011 to 14 it was going down and then last year it was as high as it's been for like 10 or 11 years which is really i mean just awful and it does feel like it it sort of goes in these cycles where it, it gets really, it takes for it to get really bad for the focus to come back on to write what do we need to do about it. And I think my understanding now, you know, unfortunately it has been slightly forced upon me to, to take more of an interest because of what's happened to me. But, you know, I can see that a lot of the narrative is about the justice system fixing this and actually the justice system is in no position to fix this. It's so much more longer term than that. It is about looking at the root causes of why this happens exactly. in the first place. It's born from society. Yeah. These people come back to society. Yeah. It's all about yeah. Yeah. communities, isn't it? Exactly. And, and I always sort of, you know, I think about this a lot and I sort of think when everything else fails, yeah. then the criminal justice system is there. Yeah. And it's almost like everyone's just getting booted down into that yeah. zone. And yeah. then, of course, once you're in that zone, yeah. it's very difficult for anyone to come out of, yeah. whether you're the perpetrator or the victim. Yeah. I mean, that is like yeah. you're at the end of the road yeah. to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Is there anything, would you go into prisons now? Would you contemplate or would you find it helpful to be talking to people inside prisons um, sharing your experience with them. We did a podcast with Marina from The Forgiveness Project, mm -hmm. who you know, yeah. I think. And, uh, you know, is that something that yes. you might contemplate? That is something very much that I'd like to do because it feels to me uh, like if the experience that I've had, if I can do something good with it, which is talk to somebody who might have been, you know, on the other side and done something bad, for them to understand that, you know, what's happened to me, I haven't let a bad thing change my future for the worst. I've made a decision mm. to fill that hole with good things. Right. And I suppose it's a case of, you know, it's so interesting you saying that hole because I guess people fill those holes with all manner of things, whether mm -hmm. it's booze, whether it's with drugs. Mm -hmm. um, but actually you have chosen to fill it with talking with friends, being surrounded by family and now contemplating doing something really positive. Yeah. I mean, there is a, quite a deal of wine in that hole, to be fair. <laughs> well, you are a wine <laughs> author, drinker, taster. Yeah. Um, but, um, but actually on that point, that's a serious point as well. Did you ever feel like it might tip over you know we're all human um i'm sitting with a glass of wine as we're doing this did you ever feel that there was a danger of your professional life in wine yeah getting blurred with your tragedy i th i think because again probably because i i work in wine and i've been surrounded with it like all my working life i am very aware of the fact that uh if not treated well it's a it is a depressive mm. so I didn't want to go down that route. So I'm definitely more of a, I love how I feel after two glasses and I, that's how I want to stay. Not so much after two yeah, bottles. Not so much after two <laughs> bottles, exactly. So, uh, you know, that does make me more aware of it. But, but certainly the idea of doing something positive with this experience that I have, if I can do that, 
for somebody who uh, perhaps, you know, is is in prison and is thinking about what happens next, if I can help at all in just opening up how they perhaps think about what happens now, then I would love to do that. So would you say that you forgive the people that did what they did or is it not quite as simple as that? I would say what I've learned is with the concept of forgiveness, um, and I've talked to Marina about this, that I went into this thinking that I have to, you know, I have to forgive everything to have to, to reach a point where I can talk about forgiveness. And that that's not the case. It, it's so personal and it's so different for every body. But I feel I've got to a place where I can't forgive the act. I can't forgive the act of what happened because that was just so devastating for so many people and completely unjust. Uh, but I can forgive the people because I understand that they are people and that they maybe were in a situation that led them to do a bad thing and as much as I wish they hadn't I don't want what happened to influence how I live the rest of my life I don't want it to make me feel angry because to me that is now a wasted emotion because there is so much good stuff in in my life including you know my kids my friends there are times when I think, you know, the fact that they will, my kids will never know their uncle is utterly heartbreaking, not least because he would have been so fantastic and so generous, <laughs> especially <laughs> at Christmas. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, that, that, is, that is really sad. But that's why, that's why we talk about him a lot, because just because he's not physically here doesn't mean to say he's not here. It doesn't sound enough to say thank you for coming along to talk to me, but um, I really appreciate that it's, you know, so hard maybe talking about these things, but hopefully it's also somehow uplifting that we can talk about Timmy yeah, and the guy that he was, the guy that I never knew, sadly. Yeah. But um, I really appreciate you being able to talk about it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Justice. If you found it interesting, you can discover more about the work we do within the justice system by visiting our website, onesmallthing.org.uk. One Small Thing is a charitable organisation striving for positive change in the justice system. If you would like to subscribe to Justice, you can do so via your usual podcast platform. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.